0: Welcome to All Saints Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to mobilize to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit AllSaintsOKC.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at ASCCOKC. So we're getting back into Acts, Acts 18, and we've seen for some time that the book of Acts is connected to the book of Luke. Remember it's part two, book of Luke focuses on Jesus and his ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit, and then the book of Acts, he's passing the baton, he's putting the mantle on Jesus his followers, to continue to do ministry like he does, to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of God. And those of you that were here for Derek Morphew over the last weekend, man, that was was rich. We're kingdom people. What we're seeing in Acts 18 here is a continuation of Paul's second missionary journey. I've got a slide here, a map, if we can put that up. So if you can remember, we were in chapter 17 where Paul was in Athens, that place that I described as a forest of idols. It was a city being smothered with paganism and the worship of idols, and behind every idol is a demon. We know that from Paul and other places in Scripture. And so he's leaving Athens, and he's heading west about 45 miles either by land or by sea, we're not sure. And he's spending time in Corinth. And he settles there, the text is telling us, for a year and a half, 18 months. He's there, he's preaching the kingdom, he's making disciples, and he's planting a church in this city. And I just want to, from the beginning here, we're going to read this in pieces, but I want us to think about the nature of the city that Jesus chose. If you remember, we spent a long time in the whole book of 1 Corinthians and we would talk about it. Each week we looked at it, but this was quite a city. It was the Las Vegas and the New York of its time. It was prosperous, lots of money. It was a chief city in Greece where there was commerce. And it was cosmopolitan. There were people from all over the empire living there, so it was a happening place. Every two years, they hosted the Olympic Games, the Isthmian Games, the Games of the Isthmus. And it was home to a lot of temples and idols as well. There were 12 temples that we know of, and a chief temple right in the center of the city was to Aphrodite, the goddess of love and it was atop a 1900 foot hill there and why don't we put that image up there i just i'm visual and those who are visual you can see this is kind of a an image of what it looked like and friends this place was debauched and so where athens was smothered with idols this place was smothered with the worship of the goddess Aphrodite. I'm not gonna talk about it too much, but it helps paint the picture of the place that Jesus chose to plant a church. In this city, they had a thousand temple prostitutes who roamed the city streets every day. So when we hear the Apostle Paul talk later to the church at Corinth and he talks about that, he says, You are united to Christ. You cannot be united to anyone else, including those workers of the temple. Takes on new meaning, doesn't it? This place was filled with godlessness. He would also say, look around, you see all these temples. You, church at Corinth, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This was Sin City, and the word Corinthian was actually used to describe all kinds of hedonistic pleasures. And again, friends, this is where Paul was directed by Jesus, as we're going to see in a moment, to plant one of the key churches in the first century, right there in the heart of Babylon. The heart of the Babylon. The Lord said, I want a kingdom beachhead. So even as we move into reading the passage and talking about it, I just want to ask us as a church, where might Jesus lead us in the coming days to plant churches? Where might Jesus lead you to plant churches in the most unlikely and dark places? What role might you have to play as we become this kind of church? Does that get your blood going a little bit? Certainly does me, and we'll see in this text that there's all kinds of roles. Some will send, some will go, some will support financially. The Lord has plans for this church in the coming days, and we're going to see him plant churches in some places like Babylon, like Corinth. So we're going to see in this passage, we're going to read verses 1 through 17 overall, and we're going to see that it offers us really practical wisdom on ministry, Kingdom ministry and church planting. We're going to see in the first section that ministry means team ministry. We're going to encounter this couple named Priscilla and Aquila. We're going to see also that ministry and church planting involves divine direction. Jesus actually speaks directly to Paul and gives him some surprising news. And then lastly, the text is going to remind us yet again of our relationship to the state. We keep encountering that. So Lord, we pray as we look at this passage today that you, Jesus, the living word, would teach us, you would speak to us through the Holy Spirit, that you would cause our hearts to burn with love and with truth. We thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you that we get to open the book And learn about you and encounter you through the pages of Scripture. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. So I'm going to read uh, Acts 18, 1-6. And then we're going to look at team ministry with Paul and Aquila and Priscilla. And then make some comments. So after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. That's after His time there in that city filled with idols. Verse 2, there he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and they worked together. By trade, they were tent makers. Every Sabbath... He would argue in a synagogue and would try to convince Jews and Greeks. So what we're seeing in these first verses here, and let's go ahead and read on to verse 6. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with proclaiming the word, testifying to the Jews that the Messiah was Jesus. When they opposed and reviled him in protest, he shook the dust From his clothes and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So, in these first verses here, we see that Paul is showing for the early church and showing for us that kingdom ministry means team ministry. He doesn't do this alone, does he? He was in Athens for a bit alone, but then he's rejoined with his teammates. And then now we're introduced for the first time to this couple, Priscilla. And Aquila, a Jewish Christian couple, and it's interesting, they're listed half a dozen times, and four out of those six times, Priscilla is listed first. We're not sure why that is. Maybe she had some kind of rank in culture, so she was designated first. It could have been that maybe she was more prominent in the church. We're not sure. But nonetheless, this couple was a kingdom power couple together. What's funny is we don't encounter a lot of couples in Scripture, do we? Can you think of many in the New Testament? Anybody remember another one in Acts 5? Didn't go too well, did it? So would you rather be more like Ananias and Sapphira, lie to the Holy Spirit and end up in the grave, or Priscilla and Aquila? And so I think Holy Scripture is giving them to us as a model of a team. They themselves are a team and then they become dear friends with Paul. And if you look at Paul's other letters in Romans 16, he comments about these dear friends of his and he says this about Aquila and Priscilla. He says, they're fellow workers with me. They risked their very lives for me. He says that in Romans 16. He also says in 1 Corinthians 16, And again, if you think about it, he's in this context for 18 months. He gets to know the people of Corinth. He plants a church, and then he writes letters to them. And he says in one of those letters in 1 Corinthians 16, later he says, Priscilla and Aquila are hosting a church in their home. So these are dear friends of his, fellow co-workers, and helping him plant and establish a kingdom beachhead in this crazy city. It also, if we think about it for a moment here, and I know we've got married people here, we've got engaged people, we've got divorcees, we've got people that are called to singleness, and so we make space for all of that, but I just wanna take a moment here. This is a couple that the Lord is giving to us to ponder their lives. They're willing to put their neck out there for Paul, they're joining him in apostolic ministry, they're chased out of one place, because of Claudius's decree, because they're Jewish. So they're ex- experiencing persecution. But friends, this is an amazing couple. And so I want to ask you couples today. It's not often that a text will say this, but what are you doing to be a kingdom couple? Some of you are saying, if you could only see my schedule. <laughs> I get it. Couples are busy there's lots going on. We have issues that we're working through. But I want us this morning to look at Priscilla and Aquila afresh and say, what do you think they did? I guarantee you they prayed together. So I'm going to invite us as a church, those couples among us, to pray together. That's a good starting point. Wouldn't you agree? I'm sure that they did lots of other things. They worked together. They planted church together together. They did kingdom ministry. But you can bet that they prayed together. And so I'm going to encourage you couples to get on your knees together. This is something that I've shared that Amanda and I have done in recent years. We listened to an older couple talk about literally getting beside their bed, on their knees, and pray together. And Amanda and I are doing this probably not enough. We do pray together more than we ever have. But I'm going to encourage you couples... Pray together. You'll be surprised what can happen in those moments. It's harder to fight and argue and hold grudges when you're praying together. Would you agree? So couples lean in to the Lord's presence together. Might be a little awkward. Do it. Pray together. And then realize you have, if you have children, disciples in the making right there under your roof. We don't know if Priscilla and Aquila had kids. The text doesn't say, but if you have kids, these are your number one disciples that God's entrusted to you. I've heard people say they were called to the nations, but the Lord spoke to them and said, I'm called first and foremost to those kids on the swing set first. That's who you're called to disciple first. So Aquila and Priscilla, the text says here that they practiced a trade Verses 2 and 3, what is that trade? They're tent makers. The word literally means leather workers. So they were probably stretching out pieces of leather and making various items, including tents, which would have been used in this Greek climate year-round for shade. And this really is the origin for missionaries and mission workers, that whole idea of tent maker is found in this text, right? What's it mean to be a a tent maker in 2023? Means that you've got a way to support yourself. And we know from the ancient world that Paul actually was expected to have a trade to lean on as a rabbi. It's the way they did it in the first century. The rabbis actually had to have a trade like tent making, like leather working, so that they could provide for their own needs. Paul comments on this, doesn't he? As he's planting churches, he will even say to them, like he does at Corinth, my hands are working so I can provide for myself and not burden you and not have to draw resources from you. So friends, this is important. This is something the text is modeling, something that Jesus is teaching you future missionaries and church planters, it is a good idea to get a skill or a trade. Learn how to work with your hands and provide for yourself. I think we're often accustomed to working with our hands to write support letters, aren't we? And sending those. Is that okay? Yes. But the text is showing us use those hands to make money and provide for yourself. And friends, I'm lingering with this a little bit because I think we have a church that's filling up with future missionaries and church planters. And so the Lord's Word is the most instructive and the most practical book in human history, and it speaks right to you. If you think, I want to be a church planter, I want to be a missionary, Consider this. Consider the example of the Apostle Paul, of Priscilla and Aquila. Friends, we got people among us who are models of this. I'm just going to list a few, okay? Esther Kerr, she's a therapist. She's got counseling. So if for some reason she had to rely on herself and not be a member of church staff, that is a skill, a trade that she's acquired along the way. Wallace, an internet provider. He has a company, and so he works for the church and in the church now, but he's had years of not doing that, serving as elder and an internet provider. Will Cotterell, who's new to the church, Will and Madeline, he's a graphic artist, right? He's got that in his back pocket to make money. So I want to encourage you, how might Jesus train you and equip you for the coming days so that you can go anywhere he leads you and have resources Amen? So Paul, as was his regular practice, look at verse four. He shares the message of Jesus with the Jews. He's trying to point to the scriptures and point to them and say Jesus fulfills all of these promises. Jews, open your eyes and realize that he is the promised Messiah. And then Silas and Timothy join him in Corinth. And the text says here that Paul was devoting himself to the word of God. He was absorbed with the word of God and evangelizing and sharing the message of King Jesus. This is a heavy moment here. Look at verse six. Paul is being opposed again. Keeps happening time and time again, doesn't it? Paul is at the synagogue. He's sharing the message of Jesus. He's pointing to the scriptures. He's saying, can't you see that Christ was promised and he came he's the resurrected ascended one he's coming again and look at verse six how do they respond they oppose and revile him and so this is a critical moment in the book of acts Paul's story he shakes the dust off of his clothes which was a Jewish practice shook every particle of dust off his clothing and he says I'm not going to have anything to do with you anymore. You're rejecting me. You're rejecting Jesus. And I'm moving on. And look what he says here. Like an Old Testament prophet, like the prophet Ezekiel, he said, your blood is on your own heads. He's basically saying, and this is, this is heavy stuff, he's saying, you're killing yourselves. By rejecting Jesus, you're killing yourself. And I want you to realize that. So Your guilt is yours. And friends, this is not an anti-Semitic text. We've talked about that before. Paul loves the Jewish people. He's going to write in Romans 9, 10, 11, his heart is breaking his whole life for the lostness of his people and the spiritual blindness they have to see Jesus for who he is. But this is a critical moment. He's saying at the end of verse 6 there, I'm going to turn to the Gentiles. And so we have Largely a Gentile focus. Let's look at the next section here, 7 through 11. Paul leaves the synagogue and goes to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the official of the synagogue, became a believer in the Lord together with all his household, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul became believers. And were baptized. One night, the Lord Jesus said to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid, but speak and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to harm you. For there are many in this city who are my people. He stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So in 7 through 11, we see Paul turning to the Gentiles, and we see him being directed by Jesus. It's fascinating, isn't it? A little bit of humor here as well. He gets kicked out of the synagogue, he leaves the synagogue, and then what happens? He ends up in the house next to the synagogue. You're supposed to catch that, right? Right? So one door closes, he's kicked out and the Lord says, you know what, I'm gonna save someone right next to the synagogue and so you can set up shop there. So Paul leaves that, he's there. People are being converted, Jews are coming to Jesus, Gentiles, non-Jews are coming to Jesus. Their whole households are being saved. That's another pattern we've seen in Acts, isn't it? Where one person in the family becomes a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and then the whole family Follows and is baptized becomes a part of the body of Christ. Look at verse 9. The Lord speaks to Paul in a vision. And this is one of those texts that can be rather disruptive to the modern American church. Right? We have the Bible, so we have all the guidance we need. Thank you very much. We don't want strange things like visions or dreams or Jesus appearing to people. And friends, what do you think? What's your response to that? The Bible, the book of Acts especially, shows us time and time again that Jesus is directly involved in the expansion of the church. Some people would say, well, it's only apostles. And I would say, no, nah, have you read Acts 8? Philip is not an apostle. There's lots of examples through the text where, yes, it's the apostles who get dreams and visions and divine direction, and so do non-apostles. And then if you read the history of the church, Jesus directs and speaks to his people, especially in a setting like this. Paul is in Corinth. Think about it. Why do you think that Jesus said, do not be afraid? Is that just kind of a hypothetical? Hey, in the future, Paul, Don't be afraid. It's because Paul was afraid. Ponder that for a second. The apostle Paul was afraid. The Jews opposed him. He was looking at the city, probably like you and I would, looking at what goes on on a daily basis there. He's left Athens and he thinks this isn't getting any better. I'm now here in the Las Vegas of its time, Lord, I'm concerned. And normally his pattern was when they began to throw rocks at him or kick him out of the synagogue or the city, what would he do? He would usually leave town and move on to the next city. And what does Jesus tell him to do in this vision? I want you to stay here. I'm just getting started. Don't be silent. Keep speaking up. And then what's at the heart of the promise? Look at verse 10. What's he say? I am with you. So the text is showing us the secret power of Paul and of the early church and for you and me is those words. I am with you. Where else have we heard that? Matthew 28. You remember that? Where Jesus says, I am with you until when? Till the end of the age. That covers all the bases, doesn't it? So even those who would say, well, that was written for the apostles in the first century. No, no, no. It was written to all disciples from all nations until when? The end of the age. So friends, for Paul, for his team, Priscilla, Aquila, for us, Jesus is with us. He lives inside of us. We're his temple. We're his people. He's enthroned on our hearts. And that is what got Paul through, and that's what gets us through. Now, you may or may not have a vision or an encounter in the night where Jesus speaks to you or appears to you, but I can guarantee you that he's with you. He's with me. And that makes us unstoppable people, doesn't it? Do you want to be unstoppable? Do you not want to cower? you want to be courageous? Do you want to keep going when it gets really difficult? And it will get difficult, right? Some of the older saints can look to the younger saints and say, hard times will come. You will want to give up. You will want to quit for various reasons. And this right here is why we don't give up. The Lord Jesus Christ is with you and in you and around you. And he has all you need. He will bring you through. his very presence. Friends, we're people of his presence. I can't leave this. This is the secret stuff right here. This is the power behind the church. We're people of his presence. Christ lives in you. If you're his follower, he takes up residence in you. You are crucified with Christ, like Yosef said last week. And it is no longer you who live, but Christ lives in you. Ponder that for a moment. Christ in you, the exalted, resurrected Lord of the universe living inside of you. And that's what he was reminding Paul in that moment. I'm with you, Paul. Don't give up. There are people in this crazy city that I've selected, and they're going to come to faith to me. John 10, he says, I have sheep that aren't of this fold. Well, this is one of those moments. Jesus had sheep in Corinth. And he was going to save them. Quickly here, we're going to have the Guam team come up and give us a report. And we're going to have ministry time. But I want to look at this because it's a message that keeps coming through the book of Acts. Over and over again, the relationship between Christians and the government. Let's read this. Verse 12. But when Gallio was pro-council of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul. And brought him before the tribunal. They said, This man is persuading people to worship God in ways that are contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Galio said to the Jews: If it were a matter of crime or serious villainy, I would have justified, I would be justified in accepting the complaint of you Jews. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I do not wish to be a judge of these matters. And he dismissed them from the tribunal. Then all of them seized Sosthenes, the official of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of these things. So the point of this, friends... There's something in here. Paul is being vindicated by Roman law. We have some attorneys in here. Got a judge in here. You perk up and listen to this stuff. This is ancient law here. And the point of it is Paul was vindicated and protected by Roman law. And this really set the trajectory for Christians in the early empire. Basically, Gallio was saying there's no crime here. There's no crime. What you're dealing with is kind of an intra-religious issue. You guys are fighting among yourselves. That's okay, but I'm not weighing in on this. I'm going to let you work this out. And the people didn't like it, so they grabbed poor Sosthenes and started to beat him. And Galileo said, you guys are too much. I'm done for the day. He leaves. That's what the text is showing us here. But friends, in this, there is something for us to ponder. Bear with me a moment, okay? It's not boring details. This is important for the church right now. And so I want it to sink into your hearts. And I want to read something here from a a commentator that was just opening my eyes this week to this. Listen to what he says. The Roman rulers tolerated Christianity because it is not overtly political in its goals. Rome changed its view later and persecuted Christians under Nero about 10 years later, not because they were a real threat to the state, but because their allegiance to God was seen as competition to their allegiance to Caesar. You hear that? This text is showing us here, Paul stood before the Roman leader and he said, you're innocent, You're free to go because you're not acting politically. There's something about your Lord, your King, not going to get into it with you, but you're free to go. Friends, we are not first and foremost devoted to the state. And you're like, Brock, you're a broken record. I am because the Bible is. We saw it over and over again through the book of Revelation, the word of God speaking directly to the church and saying, this is your standing in relation to the state, to the empire. This guy goes on to say this. Listen to this. This is a lesson for us today. One should not confuse congregation and country. They are not the same. Listen to this. Christianity transcends the state. Do you hear that? Christianity, the Christian faith, transcends the state. Why? Because Christians come from every state, from every society, and most especially because Jesus is king over all those people. No matter which country we live in or what a country's style of government is. The bottom line is, friends, we're kingdom people. We are people of the kingdom. We love our country. I say it over and over again. I love the United States of America. I want to be biblically patriotic and committed to this place where we have freedom of religion. America is an amazing place to be, even in our incredible brokenness right now. Would you agree? Some of you young people need to realize this is a great place to be. Be thankful. Try living in a place where you can't speak up or you're hung in the, the you know, town center for mentioning the name Jesus. This is a great place to be. But friends, we're kingdom people. Are we not? Our allegiance is not to any president or political cabinet or party, but to President Jesus. President Jesus, King Jesus. Now, if and when that becomes a threat to the state, so be it. But that is where our ultimate allegiance is. Amen? And I know we have people here across the gamut, across the spectrum of political conviction, and there's room for that here. Again, we love our country, but ultimate allegiance goes to the Lord Jesus. Amen? Because the truth is these leaders come and go. And if you get too attached to one, they're gone in four years. They're gone in eight years at the most. These days you get impeached and who knows what's happening in the coming days. So do not attach yourself to any of these political leaders. They will disappoint you every time. Amen? Can I get an amen on that? They will let you down every time. Now, it doesn't mean that we're not... You know, I read the news. I want to be involved, engaged, locally, nationally. But friends, we are people of the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ is Lord. And he's Lord over your life and your money and your body. And you, if you're here at this local church, that's who you're following. Amen. Why don't we, you know what, I was going to have a stand. Let's have the Guam team come up. Started preaching a little bit. So, friends, this gives us a biblical vision of kingdom ministry, of church planting. And where did the Lord choose to plant this church? Right in the heart of Corinth. What Corinth might he lead us to in the coming days?